My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. I finished off the last episode about my story as I was leaving art college. It had been a tumultuous time, as it often is, for young people leaving home, trying themselves out in the world, seeing what happens. And I had certainly been trying out the early years of art college, lots of who I was and what I wanted to be doing. And I'd had my year in America and met Mike. I'd come back, worked in the Rape Crisis Centre, and finished my degree with a final show of sculptures that I made of the female body, line drawings in welded metal rods. I had my final exhibition and celebration, and then I got ready with a few part-time jobs to go to America again in September, because I had gotten into a master's program in the College of New Rochelle in New York in art therapy. I really barely knew what that meant. I had felt drawn to it through the work that I had done. It seemed like it was an amalgamation of the things that I was interested in, people and art and healing, but had very little knowledge about what I was getting myself in for. One of the things that amuses me a lot looking back is that I specifically chose one of the colleges that didn't have a requirement for therapy for the students. It simply recommended it because I didn't like the idea of being forced to go to therapy and I was hopelessly naive about that process of self-knowledge that would be needed to become a therapist. I was also pretty arrogant inside my head. I thought, well, you know, the American students might need to go to therapy, but I was grand. I wouldn't need any therapy for anything, which I can look back with lots of amusement on now. So I headed off and I managed to get myself a scholarship to pay for the college. And that required as well that I work in an office in the education department and other masters that was offered at the college and I could get on-campus accommodation in a dormitory. I set off and was able to connect with Mike again easier because he was in Boston. I quite liked that we were still four hours apart, just till we figured out where we were in our relationship and where it was going. I was able to delve into new creative processes this time while doing art, I was also looking at how it might 
become an expression of something that I needed to say in the world and how that linked to what we were learning about the creative arts therapies, about psychology and family therapy. I soon had plenty to talk about in the counselling that was going on alongside my degree. I made new friends and I enjoyed the work in the education department. One of the things that happened was that I was very worried that I'd somehow been let into this master's degree by mistake. My grades in art college were adequate and I'd written, with the help of Mike, an application letter where he'd corrected all my bad English and I somehow felt like I would get found out. So that first semester, I worked really, really hard at all of my essays. I generally had them completed, but I was still very worried about the quality of my writing. I discovered that on this campus, in the undergraduate part of it, which was a women's college, that there was an extra school called the School of New Resources, and that had been set up to help women at a great distance from education, particularly coming out of neighborhoods in New York like Harlem, African-American women who hadn't completed high school and were older. And so the School of New Resources gave a great deal of support to these women where they did their first year of college at the same time as doing their high school equivalency and then continuing on in education. They had a learning skills center that was there to help people who hadn't managed to get through college for all manner of reasons to be able to do writing at college level. Well, I turned up and knocked on the door and asked whether a master's student could get some support with essays. They were very surprised and said, well, we don't normally get any ask for this from even the other undergraduates, let alone a master's student. I kind of fumbled and fudged my way through the conversation and said, well, you know, I'm Irish and American English and grammar, you know, it's, it, it's a bit different. It would be great if I could get some help. And luckily they said yes, and I was given a one-to-one -one learning support by a terrific woman who walked me through my essays and was incredibly encouraging about the content. You know, she would say to me that I understood the concepts and that I was reading the books okay, but my language and the way I structured an essay was pretty all over the place. I don't know if it was from anything she said or if it was from conversations that I had with some of the professors of education and special education that were coming in and out of the office where I did work in order to be part of my scholarship. But one day I bravely asked a special education professor if this thing that I'd begun to hear about called a learning disability, was something that could still be tested in someone who was now 23. And she said, well, yes, why do you ask? And I said, well, I'd begun to suspect that maybe I had some kind of learning disability. And she very kindly offered to do some tests on me, because this is something you would normally have to pay quite a lot of money for in America anyway. And so one day she sat me down and she had me go through a whole lot of little exercises, 
Some of them were things in writing. Some of them were things that were drawings I had to copy, all sorts of stuff. She included in that an intelligence test or an IQ test. So at the end, she said, well, yes, Susie, you have a learning disability, quite a severe one. You have an IQ of this number, that's a good IQ, but where you're performing is more than 30 points below that. And we would say, if someone's performing 15 points below it, that they have a learning disability. So she talked a bit about what that was, a form of dyslexia, how that played out in my visible things in the world, what, how I actually see things a little bit differently. Some things are hard to make out, some things are reversed whenever I see them, or at least when I would go to draw them. This was the most incredible relief to me. I'd really believed from my experiences in school that I was stupid. I really didn't think that I was in any way intelligent. And that's why I was having this imposter syndrome feeling of being on this master's and being afraid that I was going to get found out. The idea that I was actually something that was, if you like, challenging in my brain and structured and different in my brain, and why sometimes I would watch someone writing an essay in the library that was due tomorrow and they'd started it only a few hours before and then they'd get a great grade, I would be astonished because there was just no way I could get an essay in my master's and pass if I sat down with only a few hours. I was taking these weeks and weeks and going to these regular appointments at the Learning Support Centre and doing and overdoing really overcompensating in many ways, lots of extra reading and writing and revisions. And so at the end of that semester, I was fairly astonished to discover that I had gotten straight A's. I had never gotten straight A's in anything in my life. And I was really at first, like even doubting that they'd given me the right grades. But I guess all that overcompensation and all of that help from the rewrites and structuring and grammar, I'd actually turned out some good material. Started to relax. I didn't maintain a straight A average all the way through the two years of the master's, but it definitely stayed up there and I was able to begin to very slowly believe that maybe I wasn't so stupid after all. So I talk about that because I think it's something much later in my life that I began to see the way that I see the world. It turns out that there are a greater percentage of dyslexics amongst artists and creatives, and similarly, a large number of dyslexics in the permaculture world. So that was a sort of beginning of an understanding that there was a way I was seeing the world that for me at that time was a deficit. I saw it completely as a challenge I'd have to overcome. The professor who helped do the tests for me and talked to me about it at the time, said I could be getting there eventually. I would meet, reach my own potential eventually. But she said there, there's most likely going to be a significant delay in you being able to do everything you want to do in life. And so you'll come into your own, she said, oh, maybe in your late 30s, you'll see yourself coming into your own. 
And that was really interesting to me. It kind of took the pressure off and it resonated with things that I'd heard before that I was a late developer and a slow developer. And it gave me certainly a new framework to think about the challenges and difficulties that I'd had all the way through school. At the same time, she said to me that she was surprised I was doing a master's, not because she thought I wasn't capable of it, but she said it was very common that children who have a learning disability give up much younger. She said they can be very smart, but because of the challenges and difficulties that often people give up. That was interesting to me too, and I guess it made me feel good that my stubbornness and tenacity to not give in that was some character I carried around with me wanting to survive all the challenges that had been around in my life, that it, it was for something or that I could achieve something because of that, that I would persist and prevail in some way in the future. So I had lots of different experiences over the full two years of that master's living in New Rochelle. I ended up working as a dorm director for undergraduate students at one point and got a, another job in a computer laboratory on campus for a while. Computers were really still very new. I'd had some time with my thesis in undergraduate college, which was definitely of a different quality than what I was doing in master's level. And I'd managed to pass that, but I'd had an experience of that on a old Dell computer, nearly lost all of it to an error of copying on the old DOS system. You typed in copy A to B and my dad had been helping me and we got it wrong. And so here I was in a what seemed to me incredibly modern computer laboratory with maybe 20 or 30 Macintosh computers with little hard disks, not the floppies that I'd been used to on the Dell. And I somehow, because of Mike and my connection to him, I somehow fudged my way into being the evening person on duty in the computer laboratory. And that gave me some extra cash in my pocket that I needed to make ends meet there. And so what I would do is I had this little office off of the main laboratory that had a computer and I could be working away at my own essays and so on in there. And then someone would come in from the main laboratory and ask me a computer question. Well, I didn't know anything about computers at any sophisticated level other than writing in a word processing program. And I'd say, no problem, I'll be right out to you, just go on out. And then I would ring Mike in Boston and say, okay, here's the problem. <laughs> and he would tell me what to do. And I think they thought I was absolutely brilliant at computers through Mike, who knew them very well, had a degree in computer science and Russian. That went on and I continued with those kinds of things. And in the second year, because I had an apartment that came with my dorm director job, and you were allowed, sort of allowed, it was a bit of a fuzzy area, but you were sort of allowed to have partner live with you, especially if you were a dorm director. So Mike decided he would relocate and come and live with me. Well, we decided together. And he went out on his own and set up his own computer business in the area, doing computer consulting, helping people with their computer problems. And we lived in the dorm together and had a lot of fun with the undergrads and made really close friends, some of whom I 
remained friends with long after. And we would have gone in and out of Manhattan. New Rochelle itself was just a kind of busy little town. The campus was lovely and I was very grateful for that because it had green spaces and parkland and big trees. And I was able to get myself my first car. I bought a Plymouth Duster with a great big bucket seat and a massive steering wheel for $600. And I was able to travel about and we could take trips up to New England. So it was a lot of fun time and it was challenging learning, exploring myself in self-development, in the counselling and trying to know where my edges were and also beginning to practice as an art therapist where we did placements in a psychiatric hospital and eventually a 20-hour a week internship where I went was a huge residential facility for kids in care who'd come out of multiple foster breakdowns, many people of color, many kids that were absolutely traumatized. I had a wonderful supervisor there. So I saw kids and got to speak to her and other staff members and present cases that I was working with and really beginning to see that I had a career path that I was enjoying becoming a young adult in a more clear way than that more challenging identity fuzzy place that I had been in before. And I felt that trying on the adulthood and having a car and all of those things were really interesting. One of the things that happened culturally for me when I was back in the States during those years was that in the second year I was there, America went to war in the Gulf War. And there was a surge of a kind of patriotism I don't think I'd experienced or seen in the world before. And one of the things that was important was whether or not people agreed with America going to this war. People wanted it known to soldiers that they were not going to vilify them in the way that veterans of Vietnam had been vilified for going to Vietnam. And so they had a kind of campaign where they put a yellow ribbon around a tree, like in the song, tie a yellow ribbon around an old oak tree, to say this message to soldiers, we will welcome you home, whether or not we agree with you being at war. And one of the things that happened on campus, because I was a campus employee and I had colleagues in my campus that knew me very well, was they wanted me to get involved in one of these ribbon tying ceremonies on campus. And it was really this moment of realization how completely not American I was. I had not in my head in any way moved to America to adopt it as my new country. I didn't plan to stay there. I wasn't sure where I wanted to live in the world, but I was only there to study. They were pushing and saying, but you know, you should help. And I was going, but they're not my soldiers. And they want me to do this. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm Irish and I'm not welcoming home any soldiers to my country because I'm not American and you know, I'm actually from a neutral country. This isn't making sense. And they, I was really quite taken aback by the colleagues were not very happy about this, neither the notion of a pacifist or the notion of not embracing and loving America. And I did like America. I found it a place that gave a lot to me in terms of understanding and confidence and complete encouragement 
to go out and try and be in the world. But I also saw, and Mike and I used to have lots of conversations about this, a sense of deep inequality, even then, and that has deepened much further now, and racism. And the people that I actually became most friendly with on staff were, like me, recent arrivals in the States. So not longer-term African-American descent people, but people from the Caribbean, from the Dominican Republic, who were at a lower echelon on the pecking order on campus. They weren't working very high up in any of the jobs on campus. They might have been working in security or as a junior office person. But those were people in terms of the workers that I knew they were different again than the students I knew. I really related and we could have conversations about our edges with Americans, what we find challenging. And that otherness as well. And one of the things that it's taken me much longer to understand, but there was the beginnings of it, the nascent of it, was that alignment around colonization and racism that I did understand from the era that I'd grown up and how Irish people were viewed in the UK because of Northern Ireland and the bombing and violence that was still ongoing there, looking down on paddies, the jokes, the racism. And and I kind of understood this uh, inherently at that time without really a lot of breadth to my thinking, but I was very drawn in alignment to black women in particular that I became friends with. And then I did have friends amongst the student body who were of different ethnicities and different cultural white people in America as well. So those were very interesting years for me trying to understand myself, but the world and having increasingly a psychological framework, because we did a lot of courses in psychology, helped me understand things that I've shared in the other thread in this podcast on well-being, beginning to understand development and family dynamics, means of healing, and then that became a 25-year career for me. And when Mike and I came to the end of those two years and I was due to graduate from my master's, I had become very embedded in the campus. I was very happy there. I had gotten involved in in activism and getting what nowadays would probably be called a green campus, but didn't really exist, helped form an environmental club. And we had been involved with beach cleans down in a lovely little tiny kind of state park that was near New Rochelle, somewhere I loved to go with Mike. It was an Audubon society as well. It was just somewhere that was away from the kind of hinterland of the greater New York area that was very urban and often challenging for me in lots of ways, including New Yorkers were very different than Vermonters that I'd gotten to know and everything was very fast-paced and quick. I had a very funny time once early on trying to find out about a bus from where I was. I think I was doing sculpture up there in a different college. And I rang the operator and I said, is there a bus that goes between New Rochelle and White Plains? And this bus company person said, yep, and hung up. I rang them back and said, oh, um, where does the bus from New Rochelle to White Plains leave from? And they told me and hung up again. So the third time, I think I was beginning to get the gist of how you had to be a New Yorker in New York. And I 
rang back and I was like, can you stay on the phone until I finish the questions? I have three more questions. <laughs> and I asked things about schedules and payment and whatever. And then we got to hang up. I'd become used to all of this. I'd lived there. I'd gotten to know people. I'd gotten involved in campus issues and led campaigns and strikes and done things to ban styrofoam in the cafeteria. But despite that, and despite things Mike and I had done together, he was very much exploring was about his Judaism, his lineage. And we, we actually went to a synagogue for a while together and got involved in their committee that did things in the area that were for the social good. Mike got involved with a Russian immigrants program where they were supporting new Russian Jewish immigrants who were able to leave the Soviet Union as it was opening up to changing as we know and not being the Soviet Union. And they were leave and come to America. And I remember Mike had would go off and st because he could speak Russian. He would help people learn how to shop and learn how to navigate everything they needed regarding apartments and jobs and taxes. These were the sorts of things we were doing, but we couldn't really, even though we came to the end of that two years, we, we knew we wanted to stay together. Coming up to graduation, I think we went on a trip back to New England. We thought, where will we live? What are we going to do now? At one point, we took a trip looking for somewhere that wasn't urban, that wasn't destroyed by strip malls and car dealerships and had a feeling of community. We drove all the way up the coast of Maine and ended up at Canada, Eastport and Lubeck. And we looked at these places and some people lived in Eastport and flew to work in Boston. That kind of appealed to Mike romantically, the idea he might learn to fly a plane like his father had as a hobby pilot when Mike was young in Long Island. But when it came to it, we realized we're kind of looking for something that is almost gone in America, that small town, uncommercialized. Maybe they exist in parts that we didn't find, but at the time we couldn't find this idea of community. And we talked a lot of, with very good friends that we had made in the area about could we get together and form a community together. We imagined buying land together and getting properties together and trying to set up community. So something was stirring about wanting to connect to other people. But in the end, we basically decided, Mike decided he would really like to come to Ireland for at least two years and get to know the country I was from. He visited with me in the past and I thought, well, that's a good idea and maybe we could go live somewhere else. As we were contemplating this, one of the places we had actually considered was Israel. But as I mentioned, the Gulf War was happening. We wanted to go to Israel for the notion of kibbutz and community, but they were dropping Scud missiles on Israel at the time. And even though I had grown up in Northern Ireland and in many ways knew that there could be places that weren't involved deeply in violence, that was obviously off-putting. And so we said, yeah, let's go to Ireland for those two years and see where we are then. And then we might decide to come back to America, look for somewhere on the West Coast maybe, go up to Portland or Oregon, places that had that same feeling of Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont. Or maybe we'll look in Europe or maybe we'll go to see Israel, see what's happened there. So we were very unsure of where we wanted to be in the world. In order to do that, in order to go to Ireland, we definitely needed to sort out our visa situation. I'd actually gotten, with help from Mike's dad, I'd actually gotten a lottery visa 
to stay in the States. I think it was called the Donnelly visas after the senator who managed to get visas for Irish people who were documented and undocumented and stuff. But we said, well, actually, let's just get married. And I think we might not have done that at that time had we not got this visa thing pushing. It wasn't that we didn't want to stay together. We are pretty sure we did. But I had no attachment to marriage and some of the feminist things I'd been exposed to through the Rape Christ Center in Limerick and the women that I'd talked to, I'd been put off the idea of marriage as a construct in many ways and was certainly questioning that. But in the end, we decided we'd have a small wedding. I really wasn't going to do it in any kind of church or like big religious trappings to it, but I thought, well, maybe we could get married outdoors. I got graduated in New Rochelle, we had told my parents, obviously, and Mike's parents, and we had asked to get married in Mike's parents' back garden. And we were able to use a marquee that had actually been put up for the same weekend for Mike's little sister a few days earlier to have her bat mitzvah in. So we were very economical about thriftiness and thinking about that. And we had a small wedding. We wanted to keep it really, really small. And we had just a few of my family, my parents, my sisters, a cousin and aunt and a friend of my mother's. And I had a number of our friends and then a bit more friends of Mike's parents because it was in their area. And we then left for Ireland. Just before we left, Mike, who had been working computers, he had gotten headhunted by a recruitment company and they wanted him to go forward for a job that he might not have gotten but was in Manhattan. Computers were really booming in America at the time. And this job would pay a huge salary if he got it. I think it was in the region of 100,000, which we're going back to 1991. That was a lot of money. And I had graduated with a master's and in New York particularly, not as much elsewhere in the States because art therapy was well-known in some places and not well-known in others. The starting salaries were probably about half salary, but for me, huge salary. So we could have made this decision to stay put and earn 150000 as a couple before going anywhere so as we'd put away some savings and think about what, where we'd go later. But something in us really resisted that because concerned that should we get all that money? We'd first of all have to spend a lot of it if we were to get jobs in Manhattan. We'd have to pay a lot of money in rent for apartments and so on. And I really feared the contamination of money. I don't know why I thought that. I'm not really sure where that came from, but I had this fear that that amount of money would in some way influence so significantly as to change us. And particularly, I thought, we'll live up to it. Whatever amount of money we have, we may not save very well. We may spend it on the lifestyle that we can have with that money. And if that changes us, we may not be able to walk away from it. It may become so seductive, a lifestyle. And I was 25 when I was thinking these thoughts. And I'm very grateful to my 25-year-old self that I did do that because Although 
yeah, sure, money would have been nice. It would have been far more sensible than, in fact, arriving back home in Ireland in debt and with much less economic stability in the country and opportunity. But it did kind of set a tone for our lives and the direction we took. And after a number of years back in Ireland, we ended up buying a house and staying and we ended up getting caught up in a mortgage. And, you know, to a certain extent, we did get caught in the thing that we had tried to avoid by making the choice to come to Ireland. And yet, one of the things that that echo repeated and really a lot of what I do in my life now and what I did after we had children wouldn't have happened if we had taken that other decision. And later on, I can talk about in this thread how that led us really to where we are in Caragdulro, what we do in permaculture, all of this stuff was from that similar sort of place. Like we eventually got out of the mortgage we'd gotten into for similar reasons, because it was catching us up in a lifestyle and a life and aligning us with values that we didn't want to be aligned with. And that has caused struggles in our life. But I think that was that first really big decision to go this way or that way. So instead, we moved to Ireland in uh, some debt, not huge debt. We both had debt. I had some debt from the last part of college. And Mike, I think, had debt in a car. And we, we came home to Ireland and after the wedding. And we had a few more parties to celebrate having had the wedding in Northern Ireland with some of my relatives. I put back on my wedding dress and had a party with aunts and uncles and cousins. And then had another party in my going away outfit, I think, at a barbecue at my parents' house and had our Irish friends along. So we managed to end up having several wedding type celebratory things. Also had two little honeymoons. We had one where we left the wedding in Mike's parents' house and went out to Long Island and stayed in a lovely island called Shelter Island in a New England style little wooden house with B&B and a swing porch overlooking a creek. So lovely things. And when we came to Ireland, we took another camping trip around Wales and bits of Ireland. And, and then we settled and stayed at first in a little flat, a house that my sister and her new husband were. They got married the same year later in the summer. And I then started trying to make my way as an art therapist in Ireland. And Mike started his own business again in computers and started to make his way in that I started by working on residential care facility, mainly as a care worker. Most people got quite confused when I said I was an art therapist. And they would say, "Are you? do you fix paintings? Are you a therapist to art? Are you restoring paintings? And I'm like, no, no, that's not what it is. Or there was a thing around at the time called Color Me Beautiful. And they would help women dress in colors that would make them complexion look right. And so people would think, am I something like that? So it was really pioneering in Ireland to try and talk to people about the possibility that art therapy would be an appropriate medium. And so when I worked in this residential care for adolescent girls who had been taken into care because of traumatic circumstances at home, and although my work was paid and essentially to be a key worker, to be a companion, to look after, to cook and to take care with all of the other care staff, I started to offer art therapy to some of the girls in this home, as it was known. 
and began my career as an art therapist. And I worked there for a while. And then I saw something that brought me full circle. I saw an advertisement in the paper for counsellors in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And they were the only rape crisis centre in the country that had paid staff. All of the others had remained volunteers like I had been in Limerick. And so I applied and although they had not heard of art therapy, they had counsellors and psychotherapists. And I managed to convince them that art therapy would be a good addition to the team they had advertised for a counsellor or a therapist. And I started work there in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And it really was sort of full circle where I was back with the kinds of clients that I had known as a volunteer. But I really did have more tools in the toolkit to offer to allow them to tell their stories and express their feelings through their own creative means. And that was very meaningful work. And that was very formative in terms of my art therapy practice and understanding trauma recovery and also understanding where we still were in Ireland in regards to the legal recompense that women had and where we had a long way to go still. But there were, I suppose, more changes. There were attempts at least in the early 90s to shift the moral narratives that had been dominated by the church. And one of the reasons that that was possible was the scandals had just really begun in realizing, although we knew this, we saw both men and women in the center and many of the men that we saw, and I, I saw quite a lot of male clients, were survivors of abuse in church settings such as choirs and in schools. And so that was the beginning of it. And that has really continued right up until today with layer upon layer of what went on in industrial schools, what went on in the Magdalene laundries, what went on in the tomb baby homes, all of this trauma that was actually the very beginning that I was working in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And it was pretty intense work. It was very rewarding to see somebody's strength from survival to turn into all the creativity that they had had to put into their life just to survive, being kind of unlocked to express things, then being unlocked further to heal and change in their lives. And in some cases, to pursue a court case that were always very challenging. So I was often asked at that time, was it not really difficult work? And it was challenging work, but to be witness to and listener of all of the people who had experienced either sexual abuse long in the past or more recent rape, it was so incredible to see them be empowered to be a small part of that empowerment and listening and believing and allowing for a trusting relationship to rekindle and watch all of that journey. So I, I saw, I suppose, what is through their stories, the some of the worst of humanity, but also through their survival, some of the best. And that was incredible for me to, to bear witness to. 
And we continued on uh, living in Ireland and two years had gone by and we were living in this little flat that we loved in south of Dublin and we started to put down roots and we started to make really good friends again as we had where we'd lived before. And we just couldn't really bear the thought of moving again. We had said we might go back to America. We don't know where else we want to be. Previously not thought I wanted to live in Ireland because of what Ireland was like in the 1980s for women and what it was like in terms of employment. I didn't think I wanted to stay. And yet you, there was a feeling in the in the early 90s and as the 90s developed that there was change as possible that attitudes would change, that this uncovering of trauma was actually something that would lead to something different. And even though we were still having divorce and abortion referenda that weren't passing and lots of debate and lots of cronyism and lots of recession changes and all of this sort of thing, there was a feeling that change might be possible. And I think more than anything, we'd accidentally put down a taproot and didn't really want to be moving about again and didn't want to leave friends again. So we decided we'd stay and we got a dog. We started looking to see if we could get a mortgage and buy a house, which was also maybe the pressure around us. There was that sense of, well, if you're staying, that's the stage of life. You're married now and that's what you do next. So we we looked into that and we were really, really fortunate to be at a stage in how our housing policy existed still in the 90s, where the government looking at different ways of supporting people to be housed. So there were still council houses, but there was also this option being trialed in a few counties and I think a couple of boroughs of Dublin what they called share ownership. So instead of the council owning the whole house and it being built within a council estate, there was this other option where, and this is funny if you look back at the figures, but if you were earning between eight and 12,000 punts, I think, we're still in punts, not euro, a year, you could get on a share ownership scheme. You could buy a house that couldn't be more expensive than 40,000 without needing a deposit and with the council owning 40% of it and you paying them rent on their 40% and then getting a mortgage from the council for the other 60%. So we managed to apply and get on that scheme. We were barely making 8,000, the two of us together. They thought when we were doing the interviews for it that we were maybe trying to hide that we were making a bit more than 12,000 and they were like, well, it's okay. And we laughed because we were not really making the amount we were supposed to. But we managed to do that. We got a little cottage in County Wicklow that was need of some fixing up, but was pretty okay to live in. And we were told stay in that on that scheme for only a couple of years and then you should think about selling so that you might manage to buy the council out or get another mortgage from a bank. And these were all these kind of young couple financial advice and telling what's the best way to get on a upwardly mobile property ladder and all this kind of thing. 
And so we moved into to the little cottage and then we decided to start a family and we had our first child and then I was still working in the rape crisis centre and, and my mum helped out looking after our baby and we later got some help with some childcare and growing a garden in our cottage, having some chickens. So part of the life that I'd imagined was coming to fruition. But we were also still commuting to Dublin. And by the time I had our second child, and when I was nearly due having her, I thought, I'm not sure I want to keep working in the Rape Crisis Centre now. It was something where I was becoming a kind of a lens that I saw the world through. I'd be on a train commuting and I would kind of think there's someone surviving. That person might be an abuser. That might be a bystander because of all this in the media as well. It was a, it was really a frame. And I thought that's probably beginning to not be a good thing, not be a healthy sign and not be very healthy as a young mother either to be framing the world that way all the time. So I was able to stop work and Mike decided he would get a job in a computer company, which was really beginning to boom in Ireland in the 90s. So he did that, and that was helping us make our payments and followed this advice that you would then move. So we managed to do that, but we pushed up the mortgage amount based on the fact that Mike had a salary. And we sold the house this little cottage for, that we'd bought only a few years before for 40000 for 60000 And we got a mortgage for something close to 80000 in a three-bedroom semi-detached house in Wicklow Town with a big garden so I could grow more vegetables and have hens and place for the children to play. But what we did in that moment was we followed this idea of you're supposed to move up a notch. And by doing that, we had a much, much bigger mortgage. We had paid off the council bit. So now we own this house or the bank owned it outright and we were paying our mortgage. And that really strongly tied Mike in to the salary he was earning. And it tied us into this life of, of, of me part-time working sometimes or doing little bits of locum work, depending on the age of the kids, and then needing some childcare, or we had for a while an au pair for nine months, and we were following a certain lifestyle. And we were getting holidays too. We would go off camping with our kids around Ireland, started to go camping in France even, and had some lovely trips. But the pressure to pay that mortgage and maintain that lifestyle was falling mostly on Mike and he was in corporate computing and rising up along the chain of management. But ultimately, that was resulting in less and less time with the family, less and time with me, with the kids. And by the time we had our third child, their first birthday, Mike said, I've missed their first year because he'd been off working so late that he'd often take the latest bus home. If he'd missed the latest train, he could be on a nine o'clock bus or even a midnight bus. But even if he took the train in the winter, he'd be home when the children were asleep and he'd leave before they were awake. 
and he was missing out. And in the weekends, he'd get time, but he'd often be really busy. He also did MBA through the Open University in those years because that was the thing to do to help you move up the management chain and corporate computing. And so I think five years went by and we had our last child and we both were talking about getting more debt to extend the house we were in and put another bedroom on. And it just, something was, we were looking at each other going, this is not what we dreamed of. We dreamed of creating a summer camp in the woods somewhere and bringing children into connection with nature. Or we dreamed of doing other environmental actions like the environmental boat Mike had worked on in Long Island Sound when we'd lived in New York, which was something he did part of his time there, taking kids out on a clinker-built ancient boat with square sails. And they did stations of dipping plankton and showing kids the wonder of nature that way through science and connection. So we weren't really happy with the direction things had taken that he was missing an entire year of our third child and not there as much either as we progressed to having a fourth. And so part of what we started to do is Mike decided to negotiate to move to a four-day week. And that worked for a while and he was allowed to do that. And we managed on the reduction of income and I picked up bits of art therapy work still. And then we reduced again and he reduced to a three-day week. And what was happening for him was that he was going in doing the three days, but really loving the four days that he was with the family. So we couldn't figure out how to change this because one of the things that I think is really true is that it's very hard to think about your life when you're in your life. And so we decided we would try to get outside of our life and have a different lens on it. We started looking at what we could do. And one of the things we actually explored because of my connection to Camp Hill and the Northern Ireland as I was growing up and that love of that community, we thought we'd try and work in a Camp Hill somewhere in France because we'd loved our holidays in France. And I speak French from the school exchanges. So we thought we could do that. And we got really close to that happening. But what happened in the end was complicated because the, the the particular place we were going to go to was under big change. They'd agreed for us to come, but then they were under a big change and threat because Camp Hill is a community, people live there, and the French authorities had been changing things for the benefit of workers in disability in much more institutionalized settings so that the workers would not have to work more than a 30-hour week and that they'd have adequate rest and respite so that they would be able for that institutional work. But Camp Hill doesn't have that at all. People live in the community with people who they would call villagers who have disabilities. They're there with their families and kids. And so they it's very hard to count what hours are you working and what hours are you living and contributing to the community you're part of. And that was causing them big problems and they were basically going to potentially close. So they got in touch and said, look, you might not want to come this year. So we we heard of this thing called woofing and we took a holiday and woofed for 
two weeks in a farm in Brittany with an English couple to see well, how would we do with this with our children. And we had such an amazing time working with them on their farm. And it was probably very idyllic weather for the two weeks as well, which helped. And we thought we could do this. We could go woofing. And willing workers on organic farms is what woofing stands for. And we thought, yeah, we could do that. So we took another year to figure it out. And we decided what we could do would be to rent out our house. That would help continue paying the mortgage. And we would go off in our Volkswagen camper van that we'd gotten by then with four kids and a dog. We left our other dog with the house with the girl that rented it to because he had kind of his own routine. He used to get fed by us, but he also went down the hill and got fed by somebody else and went for a walk and got a butcher's bone and came home. So we told her to not feed him much. And we took our other dog and our kids and our camper van. And we stayed in Ireland a little bit before we set off. And then we headed off for six and a half months of working on organic farms in Italy, France, Croatia, and had the most amazing time on, I suppose, most of that in Italy, four months in Italy. Mike working on an olive farm, me living in a apartment with the kids and them going to school in Italy, the ones that were big enough and making friends and yeah, lots of adventures. And we do have a blog about that with pictures of us with the kids and that adventure. And what was wonderful about it was that every week we'd have a different idea about how we could change our life because now we were outside of our life and we were trying on other people's lives for size and we were learning skills and we were seeing projects and getting ideas and literally every week I think we had a different idea about what we would do and what our project might be like and that was just amazing and we came home to Ireland we traveled some more we didn't we were away for a whole year out of the house so we visited projects in Ireland as well and when we came back we started meeting people that we'd known but we didn't know they shared some of the interests we had we had conversations about could we set up as a cooperative we'd been running Mike had been running a bulk buying group and had contemplated a cooperative like the Dublin Food Co-op for that and we we couldn't quite find people when we came home who were willing to take risks with the ideas we had or to jump in because we were so enthusiastic having been away and really excited about what we could do that we were ready to take risks and take a leap and we saw what other people had done over long periods in projects in organic growing and permaculture and we had a lot of ideas about education and nature connection and kids camps and all of that. So we came home again and we put our house on the market and decided we would get out of this debt. Mike would not be tied to having to go back to corporate computing. And we had a really, really lucky break. We'd had ups and downs of finances and struggled to make sense meet at various times. Things had been very tight in different periods, but all of a sudden we found ourselves in a really lucky position because we sold our house unknown to us because we weren't financially this savvy but we sold our house at the peak of the Irish property bubble in the Celtic Tiger years and we sold this house that we had paid I think 80,000 or thereabouts for 
for a heck of a lot more money. And we were able to pay off our mortgage and sit there looking at cash in the bank and go, well, what will we do? Will we begin? How will we begin? And we knew we wanted to begin with some land. We'd had other conversations, as I say, with others about community and about buying property together. And we had loads of ideas, but ultimately we needed to just go for it and see what happened. We would have liked to have done it in community. And we looked at eco-village ideas, all this. But in the end, we thought we'll just start and we will try to build community around the project. And maybe later on, people will be ready to do more collaborative things. But I think partly that it was coming out of this period of the Celtic Tiger, there was a lot more competition, a lot more busyness, a lot more craziness than there would be down the line. So we sold our house, we rented a house and we bought a piece of land and that I will begin to tell in the next episode because that brings us to the beginning of Caragdura that in many ways is what's led me to big chunks of this podcast when I'm talking about ecology and permaculture and yeah, what we developed in Caragdura from 2006-7ish when we got here and what we're doing now has really been tied together a lot by that decision to take the leap and yeah be lucky and we had lots of challenges since then which I can get into but we certainly had a very big stroke of luck that we wanted then when we got the land that we would share it with others because we knew many people didn't have access to property or land and we would find a way to do it with as much communal input as we could.